Welcome to Reimagine Teaching, a podcast for teachers about reimagining a better, brighter future for teachers and students. Um, today, I'm here with Maureen Hill, um, one of my first co-teachers um, when I started teaching um, to talk about um, English instruction and reading practices in the classroom. I mean, I'm super excited. Um, when I reached out to you, Maureen, it was because I used something that we had taught together. I started using it with my ESL students and was like, I forgot how amazing this is. <laughs> um, so I'm, I have been so grateful for the strategies that we, that I learned from you and that we worked on together. And now even five years later, still use in my classroom. So that's been really fun. Well, thanks for inviting me. Glad to be here. Um, we start every podcast um, a little more positively. What is something that is bringing you joy this week? school related or otherwise um well and it besides being on this podcast um <laughs> i've been doing some mentoring with my uh, nephew he's student teaching and uh so we we zoom every week so um i got to share some things with him that i haven't done for a bit and i was mm -hmm. like oh i need to go back and redo this poetry stuff sharing it with paul um, and then outside of teaching, um, last weekend, I went to my nephew's wedding in Texas, and it was just beautiful to see this gorgeous wedding and be in the warm weather. <laughs> right. That is fun. I know today is what I told my husband. It's Wisconsin warm. It's 45 out. So mm -hmm. if you're in the sun, then it's like bearable. <laughs> um, he's like, it's not warm enough to be outside. And I was like, if the sun's hitting just right and you have a couple layers on, then it's nice. Awesome. Yeah, we're not quite to spring yet, but we're getting there. We're getting there. Uh, yeah, this week I'm on spring. Well, finally, spring break started yesterday. Um, so we have the next week off school, um, which I'm so excited about and so relieved. I'm trying to explain to people who are not teachers about uh, maternity leave being unpaid <laughs> is fun. And so um, a couple of weeks ago, I started having some symptoms and I was like, I can't have the baby early. We, our family can't afford for the baby to come super early. <laughs> I was like, I have to make it to spring break and then our finances would be okay. <laughs> so literally like getting home Thursday after work and be like, okay, okay. Now, if the baby came early, we'd be all right. But we made it to the soft deadline. Still have so much to do and plan, but. Yeah, that's the thing about teaching. There's deadlines. And then as soon as you make a deadline, you're like, Whew, did it. Then there's like seven more. Right. And you're never done. No, even, I mean, yeah, I'm like, okay, I here's my to-do list for things. And then I got a meeting invite for middle of May, which I will definitely not be at work for like planning for next year. And I'm like, I would love to have input on that, but I won't be at work. So I guess I'll just write a note ahead of time. <laughs> I don't know. Why. Like, oh, well, we can meet later in the summer. And I'm like, I also don't want to do that. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, always something. Um, and then just the anxiety and the nesting of being pregnant. And I'm like, I was like, just relax. I'm like, I literally cannot. I don't know what that means. Yeah, that's not really your style. No. But then you're no. always prepared and you have some things going. Yeah. Thankfully, I started a craft project. I'm like working on a little handmade mobile for the nursery. So even when I'm watching TV, I can be like, working on something <laughs> which helps my anxiety to be like 
no, 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 I'm not relaxing. I'm working while binge watching whatever show. I, I understand that. I, I do my knitting, but I've had to like back off because I had surgery for carpal tunnel and right. other tendon issues. And if I knit, it aggravates. Yeah. Yeah, I used to knit and that was the same thing. I was like, I can't do that. But trying to find stuff I can do, be passively productive. Um. So what is your, so when we worked together, you were English teacher and you coach out with the ESL team. Mm-hmm. Are you still, is that still your position? Has that um, changed at all? This is the first year in a long time that I have not co-taught the English 9 ELL sheltered class. Aww. I know. I was very sad to give it up because uh, that meant giving up co-teaching. And while some co-teachers are better than others, one amazing co-teaching partner who's on this podcast with me right now (laughs) knows that. But now I only have two preps. Now I do English Mm. 9 and my reading strategies classes, which is that reading intervention course for students at the high school level that um, for whatever reason might be struggling with reading, trying to build their fluency, accuracy, and comprehension, if not love of reading. Right. Well, that's nice to have fewer preps. I think that was one of the discussions we had with my boss was like, why do the ESL teachers feel so overwhelmed? And I was like, I have five preps plus a guided study hall, which really I should prep for and help like know what students have to do. So really six preps. She was like, that's a lot. And I was like, "Mm -hmm. (laughs) mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes. The number of preps matter. And there are some schools who are like, just teach everybody teach the same thing all day, which I don't, I wouldn't want to do that. I've done that. I did that with reading strategies for, I think my first eight years of, I just had five sections of reading strategies and I was burnt out. Yeah. And then I added in the English nine and then got asked to do the ELL and did three preps for I think eight or nine years. Let's yeah. see. I did it for eight years and I think I had 12 co-teachers over wow. that time between oh maternity God. leaves and different things yeah yeah and the ELL class um one of the things that was cool about the way they did it at the school we taught at was that it was only ESL students mm-hmm. um and so it was it was freshman English but only ELL students were enrolled and so it really was a co-taught class whereas now I push in to the class and typically a third of the class is ESL um which sometimes can be a little bit awkward because you know, we're like translating stuff, but two thirds of the class doesn't speak Spanish or like really trying to slow down strategies when there's, you know, half the class doesn't need it that slow. Um, but having all ESL kids in one room is a very different kind of challenge because of the behavior and the, and I, it was, it's true. It's been true in every school. The ESL kids get along so well that sometimes doing academic stuff is hard. <laughs> and I've been, trying to prep the sub who's covering my maternity leave like they are so close that when you try to get like if something happens to one of their friends that's all they're going to talk about the whole class period the all 20 of them I don't know what to tell you um but it makes it really special to to do you know I'm thinking when we did Romeo and Juliet to do Romeo and Juliet with a bunch of kids who have 
you know, similar cultural backgrounds and who are so close to one another to like sit down and help each other work through stuff like that is really cool. Yeah. You can get a really great cohesive um, vibe going in the room. And it's also great to have that, you know, with a co-teacher in there to kind of play off each other and support each other. And somebody's having a bad day. It doesn't have to bring the whole class down. Right. That's definitely one. Yeah, definitely an advantage to having go teachers. Um, so with all of your reading experience, your English instruction experience, why do you think it is? This is a big question for today that students hate reading so much. Oh, you know, and I th- I think that my answer to this question 20 years ago would have been very different. Mm-hmm. Um, but today I think that the dislike of reading tends to be the attention span with the phone and screen. We just um our brains are getting accustomed to a really quick yeah. transition from one thing to the other. And for reading, you really have to have that sustained piece. Talk about SSR, sustained silent reading. And having that stamina to sustain attention is necessary to sort of get into that story world and get lost in the story. Yeah. You have to be able to read several pages at a time easily, fluently, effortlessly for that to happen. And students don't have, if their fluency isn't there, But then even if the fluency is there, they're just used to flipping their eyes around the room or to a different place every every few seconds. So I think that's part of it. It is definitely reading is one of the most inefficient ways to get information. In a like modern digital age. Like, why would I read it if I can Google the answer to the question or find a video or. Yeah. And that's the the thing of like, what are our purposes for reading? Mm. Um, and if it is just to find information, then yeah, you know, you don't need to read a whole article to get the fact or the, the, the piece that you're looking for, but to get more context, to see how an argument builds and develops over a thought process. That piece is really important. But I don't know how obvious it is. It's like, you know to do that if you know to do that. Mm -hmm. But if you don't know, that's how it works. It's like, well, why can't I just find this information? Yeah. Even the attention piece is interesting. I I don't support any English classes, but I have kids in my study hall who obviously are taking English. And so they had a big Romeo and Juliet assignment due. Um, And the one kid, I was like, you know, you're supposed to make an argument and find quotes. And I was like, what is the story about? I was like, I don't know. I was like, great. So I find the YouTube Spark Notes summary, you know, video. Yeah. I think he watched it five times because the first two, I had like a little graphic organizer for him to fill out and he watched it twice. And he, I was like, so what happened? And he was like, well, I don't know. I was like, watch it again. But even his attention for an eight minute video, he struggled so much that, yeah, I literally made him, I was like, watch it until you can answer my question. And then was able the next day to like sit down and do it with him. But it was like, dude, you didn't even like you've been talking about this book for weeks in your classroom. That's all you guys have been doing. Like there's an eight minute video 
And I think the question I had was like, you know, whose choices led to the ending? And he was like, I don't know. And I was like, all right, watch it again. <laughs> but yeah, even in, you know, the the literature in a video that was only eight minutes long and he I like watched him like look all over the room. <laughs> all right, try again. Yeah. And I think if you don't know how to hook your attention to something, then you know that distraction is going to happen. Sort of we're we're built to be distracted. Mm-hmm. Distraction is is pretty darn normal. But knowing how to hook your attention into, well, I need to recognize who's, who this character is and follow them to see how they change or to look and oh, this character's purpose is for conflict. And so what's the conflict going to be and how is it going to turn out? And if you have a lot of experience with that, it gets super easy and you're not even aware that you're doing it. Mm-hmm. But if you're the, the slow build of a story, it takes time and energy and patience to invest and then if you take that long story and you cram it into the eight minutes there's so much going on that it's like it just it's going too fast you can't take it Mm -hmm. all in because that's not how it was designed right right this is not a podcast about technology but i'm curious do you have a phone policy at your school oh uh (laughs) yes is it effective (laughs) no Uh, Our policy is at the beginning of class, students are to secure their phone in their backpack or pocket. And we do have like little phone pockets at the front of the room that um, if a student has their phone out once, they're supposed to get a private personal reminder, put your phone away. And then after that, if their phone's out, then they're supposed to put it in the pocket in the front of the room. Um, But if they refuse to do that, at the beginning of the year, we could call for a hall monitor who would come and take the phone away for the rest of the day. And then they stopped doing that. And now <laughs> it's whack-a-mole. Put your phone away. Put your phone away. And then it's like, no, I'm not going to put my phone away. And what are you going to do? Because you can't take my phone. And I'm like, right. I don't know what I'm going to do because I have no other tool. Right. Except to like take more of my time to like contact a parent or something. Right. Which is... A very inconsistent thing on on my part. So keeping the phones away is so important for them to have that focus. But um, systemically, um, if I personally can't make the kid do it, then there's nothing I can do. No, and I, we have a, like our district policy is no phones in the classroom. But again, we don't have any like building systemic process for that so my classroom process is similar the kids though get we have a bell ringer almost every day and I don't regulate phones during that and I don't regulate phones during like independent work time um and so I tell them I'm like literally just the we have 55 minute blocks and I just need the 20 minutes 25 minutes in the middle that you have your phone away I have kids who literally like and then I do I have like pockets in the front of the room and I'll be like all right then I'll take your phone but probably two-thirds of the kids when I say okay can you put your phone up they'll just walk out of the room and I'm like well now they're just missing what little instruction they may have gotten from being distracted in the room obviously they're not going to get anything if they're not in class um but I also have students who like will get really upset when I'm like hey again put your phone away they will have their phone in their hand and be like what are you talking about they don't 
I had joked. I was like, it's like a pacifier. You don't even realize you like I'm staring at your phone in your hand. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I'll put that in my backpack. Like, Thank you. But they just are so oblivious to the fact that it's even around because it's like another limb. Um, and they'll be like, I'm not on it. And I'm like, I don't care. I don't want to see it. Um, but that is hard. It's hard to. I think when you have conversations about, you know, classroom management and trying to help students achieve academically, there has to be some discussion of, you know, if we, there's no way teachers can compete with phones. There's billions and billions of dollars poured into making them addictive and attention getting. Uh, what am I going to do? <laughs> yeah. And right now what I'm noticing a lot um we get told a lot that relationships are key. And and I totally agree with this. I, mm-hmm. Relationships matter. We have to treat our students well. We need to treat them with respect. We just had a little PD about uh, unconditional positive regard mm-hmm. for students. Um, and it's something I've worked on personally, really consciously for the last... I think three or four years, or maybe like the year before COVID hit, I was really focusing on just not allowing anger to come into my interactions with students. No matter how frustrated I would get, I just try to just not let anger be a part of my reactions. Now that's not perfect, but it's really helped. But it seems like that's sort of like our only toolbox. Our right. only tool in the toolkit is well, if you have strong relationships with your students, then everything will be perfect. Right. Or if anything's not perfect, well, then you just have to build stronger relationships. And that makes me as a teacher feel exhausted. Yeah. Because I can't be everybody's best friend. And I can't teach every student in my room as if they are an only child. Right. Which is... Honestly, it's my favorite way to be. If I can be one-on-one with kids and give them yeah. my full attention, that's great. But I can't do that every single day with every single kid. And then if there's, um, you know, having a, a more systemic uh, enforcement of phone issues or or things, then there's some backup with that. Right. I don't know. I just kind of was coming to that realization. Um but I'm trying not to get stuck there. Yeah. Be like, well, if that's all I can do, then that's all I can do. Okay. That is definitely something I can do. I very much value it. But then how can I figure out what I need in addition to those relationships? Right. And advocate for that from my students, from my right. admin and, and things. Yeah. And the relationship piece is hard. I have had a freshman this year that just, she started the year in my class in two of my classes um three I had her three times a day literally had no interest in talking or getting to know me at all and would refuse to do work and refuse to put her phone away and would refuse to talk to me you know hey what's going on do you want a different seat can I and so finally I had to tell admin um, she got pulled she requested to be pulled out of my classes um and is failing and they're like well clearly she needs your support and I'm like she doesn't want it and I don't like you can't force a student to want help or to want a relationship with their teacher like I don't I don't know what to tell you um but also it made the whole environment weird when you know everyone's working on a worksheet except this one student who's got her head down on her phone 
and blatantly ignores me when I ask her to put it away. Um, but yeah, if relationship is the only tool we have, and that was, I was so frustrated at the beginning of the year. Cause I'm like, I am trying, mm-hmm. but oh my gosh, literally like talking to a wall. I don't like, what else do I do? <laughs> you know, and thankfully our Dean was like, you're yep. You tried your best, you know, put it in writing. Like you tried your best <laughs> and hopefully she'll figure it out at some point that you guys are there to help her. Um, but yeah, it feels like right now, like, yeah, that's your only tool. And if it doesn't work, or we have kids who have such horrible attendance, no. how are you supposed to build a relationship with a student you see once every other week? Yeah. And these are, I some of this I want to say is COVID and the pandemic and kids coming back. They've got the, they've got out of the habit of coming to school or staying in class, but the, the attendance challenges, I mean, they've always been there, but just mm-hmm. the the number of students who are having major attendance issues is more than ever before. But then more than ever before, the students who are there, but not engaging, despite heroic efforts. Right. And that's also something that I feel in a school, you know, my school, we have a pretty diverse population. Mm-hmm. We have nearly um, 50% of our students are non-white, but our staff is overwhelmingly white. And it just gets trickier to form those relationships when there's, um, you know, to, to tell a student that you have to form a relationship with somebody. And it's this power differential in with school authority there might be gender and race and class and all these things that make it trickier. Right. But if that's our only tool, who are we serving? I, I don't see it as, as equity, but I also see relationship is huge to equity. Right. It, it's one of, it's like teaching. You solve one problem and four more come up. <laughs> right. <laughs> you solve one problem and it stays solved for a day. Yeah. And it's always changing and it's always exciting. Yeah. And then there's another pandemic or epidemic or yeah. Or a fire drill or tornado. (laughs) Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Last year we had, uh, we had a fire in the, in the school, in the kitchen, like culinary class. Um, And then like the week later we had an Alice drill and we were, we were all kind of like, you know, for Alice, you should do this and this. And we're like, we all saw what happened with the fire drill. As soon as kids realized we had to bust them to the other high school, they all drove home in their cars because they have cars. And what were we going to do? Or they walked home. Like, we can't. Do I know if all my students got out of the building? I do because I only had four kids in my room at the time. But if I had a whole 30, I don't know. And I was like, yeah, that whole system is messed up. <laughs> like, we have this system and I was like yeah we gotta look at that again so as far as reading I'm trying to think so what I realized at the semester this year um my students really really my ESL students struggle with reading I teach um the ESL class I have is the middle level Mm -hmm. but mostly long-term ESL students is who ended up in this class Mm -hmm. so they've been in school since at least middle school, if not since elementary school. 
um, but they are not testing out and they're struggling academically still. Um, a lot of freshmen and sophomores I have. So part of it is just the adjustment to high school. Part of it is they their whole middle school was kind of messed up with COVID. Um, but then a part of it too is just with all of those things, not having the strategies to like understand why we're doing what we're doing. Um, and last year I was able to co-teach with the English department. And so I saw some of the students' frustration of, um, you know, we have a textbook, their English texts were a lot of excerpts um, or short stories. And the teacher would hand it to them and say, you know, annotate two things on this page in the next 15 minutes. And that was it. My kids were like, I don't know what that means. And I don't know what I'm looking for. And I've never read this before. So how would I even know where to start? And so in my class, my curriculum is entirely nonfiction because um, it's supposed to be more cultural um, vocabulary and awareness stuff for ESL students. But at the semester, then we started, um, I started using news ELA articles. Mm-hmm. Um which they're going to start being paid this summer. And I'm not excited about that. Um, yeah, the the restrictions on that have hit me. So I, I barely use it anymore. Yeah. Um, but what I like about it for my ESL students, and I think we, I used it when we taught together, or at least at that school I did, um, is that you can print the same article at multiple Lexiles. Yep. Um, so I have ESL students who are sped. I have ESL students who are newcomers, but actually have a really high, um, you know, our reading ability. And so when we do practice, I literally, it's like the same article, but low, medium, high, and you get to pick for that day, what you feel like reading. Um, and for some kids, like they worked all night and they're like, yeah, no, I can't do <laughs> grade level content today. Um, it was fun. One of the first ones we did was about soccer and a lot of my students play soccer. And so one kid who I expected to pick a lower one, cause he doesn't usually want to put that much effort in he was like oh no I know this topic really well give me the hard one I was like all right cool but I started using the notice and note signposts which we had taught I learned from you we had taught those together mm-hmm. um and so that was one thing I was I I started using and I'm going to ask you to kind of explain it because you probably are more of an expert than I am um but also just giving students a purpose for their reading before they start um I didn't realize until I started to reflect on it, how many classes the kids go into. And it's like, okay, read this page. What did you learn? And they're like, I don't, I don't know what's important and what's not important going into this. I don't even know how to find the important things. Um, And so our like reading thing is two part. They have to annotate the text and they have to answer close reading questions. Um, And the source that I, um pulled I got the close reading questions from she's like one of the first things she says is but they need a purpose you know today we're reading to find out how science impacts you know the soccer world cup and that'll be one of the questions I ask you after you read the article so if that's the only thing you look for while you're reading that's fine but that's what you need to look for and then at least the kids felt like they were prepared to sort through the information as they went through um and so those two things just the the giving them a purpose um, and then the annotating has been huge in helping my students actually understand the text um, that they're reading. And then I've seen some of them 
start to use that in other classes, which has been really fun. Um, Transfer. I know. <laughs> like That's the goal, guys. Yeah. Um, so, but can you, because you, I learned it from you and you use it a lot more. Talk a little bit about what those signposts are and like how have you seen that helpful in your classes? Yeah. Um, well, the signpost comes from the book Notice and Note by Kylie Beers and Bob Probst. Um, and I first encountered it at uh, a conference in Des Moines, Iowa, um, and it was for uh, an ELL conference. So it was presented to the group as strategies particularly helpful for ELs. Um, but the book wasn't written specifically in that way. Um, and then I also see a lot of um, overlap between the notice and note sort of process and um I think it's Harvard has the thinking routines. Mm -hmm. um, I just was at a, a thing this week talking about the thinking routines. And it's just that habit of mind of you need to notice things to think about and to make sense of what's going on. And what um, Beers and Probes did, they started with, not, with uh, fiction, particularly like children's and young adult fiction. And they look for different things that were really consistent across a lot of text, things that authors do to let you know what's important. And so the way I tell this to the kids is like when we're talking or there's a video or there's some other way of communicating, we have so many ways to let you know what's important. Um, if I yell, you know, I, it's important. If I make eye contact, something's important. You got to pay attention to this bit. But when it's just all those words on the page, there's very little that the writer can do to make things pop out at you um, with the, the way the information is coming to you. But you can look at patterns in the text that point that out. So in fiction, things like the mentor character, that signpost is called words of the wiser. But when you've got a character giving advice to another character, that's usually for a really important purpose. There's some lesson to be learned. And that's, I, I try to, with my English classes in particular, like, why do we even have English class in high school? Because you're all, you know, speaking English. It's not a grammar class, though. It's a literature class. Why do we do literature? Um, and I tell them, it's because we read stories, because they teach us what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And we're always looking and, and reading stories to look through that uh, window out into an, a broader world or to look in a mirror and reflect on ourselves. And how do we figure out what these lessons are? Um, the authors are putting these lessons in their stories and the ways that they do that are fairly common because we all have this common human experience. So in real life, you'll get advice from a mentor. You'll also see that in a story. And that's going to help you see something about how a character is developing and what lessons they're learning, you know? Because usually they're going to reject the mentor's advice at the beginning of the story. But by the end, they're going to hear that re repeated phrase from the mentor. I was telling my coworkers about, as we I was starting this, and I was telling them how cool it was and we taught together and we had ESL students who really did not read. Their literacy, like their um, their fluency was really low. You know, we're like sounding out words. So we would read a lot of times we read out loud. But that what I liked about the notice and note is that every kid could participate 
even if it was just the one kid who would, you know, when we read Romeo and Juliet, would be like, the nurse is the old lady, right? The mentor. And we were like, yeah. And he was like, she talked. Great. And like, felt like they were contributing to the classroom discussion just by saying like, that's words of the wiser because the nurse is talking. Good. We're halfway there. And what advice was she giving? And they can usually figure it out. But at least to say, you know, they can identify something where it feels like it's um, accessible instead of just like, I don't know, it's a bunch of words and Shakespeare's weird and hard anyway. They were like, no, 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 no. When the nurse talks, that's important. I don't remember why, but it's important. And at least they're able to call that out um, and be engaged in some way was always really cool. Yeah. And, and the way I'm talking to it with my students right now is if you notice something and you've got something to say, I don't care what you call it. You don't have to be like, this is the words of the wiser. The the signposts are there if you're not sure what to look for. They help you focus and attend to what you're doing, but they're not meant to limit you. Be like, oh, well, that's not a particular signpost. So I can't think about that. And so that's been, I think as a as an English department, we talked about we might have gotten a little overboard and restrictive about. We got to do all the signposts. You got to identify all of them and answer the signpost questions. Um, and that felt ended, ended up being pretty limiting if the kids were like, so my, and this is something I think of with reading, it's very easy for kids to get stopped up and think reading is all about the performance. Mm-hmm. If I can read it out loud in a way that sounds good, then I'm done. Um, if I know the words, I've done the reading instead of, that it's really a very personal meaning-making process. And we've got all these different tools to make the meaning, but we can also get stopped up and like, well, these are the tools and that's the performance. And if you can do that performance, then you're done. And then there's not the transfer or the the actual engagement. So that's a a balancing act um, to do that with the, the signposts. And so we found like not giving a ton of them all at once, but just focusing on a few and then layering in over time. Like, oh, this this tough question thing. Yeah, that's a great one. But, um, but if a kid never notices a tough question, I'm, I'm not going to be upset about that. But if they don't notice the aha moments, because that's pretty, pretty common. And you can do this in movies and songs. And it's so it's universal to story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we were working together, was the nonfiction version out? Mm-hmm. The notice and notes. Because that one is um, really good at helping kids just figure out bias. Yeah. If their reading is reliable or not. But it's not as helpful, I don't personally think, about finding out like, well, what is the author's claim yeah. that they're making? helps them identify some evidence but it doesn't help with figuring out that claim so much but also we teach claim evidence reasoning writing we do too yeah that there's lots of ways to hit that so i've been using it mostly for nonfiction, um and i don't have the official notice and note stuff um and also because i started it mid-year was similar to what you said i didn't want to overwhelm them with like everything we do with reading is gonna be completely different um and so I looked at all this stuff and kind of made our own annotation guide and so Mm -hmm. it's words that are repeated quotes numbers 
main ideas if they identify some and then extreme language and we talked a little bit about you know if an author says best or most again the kind of bias stuff but even just i mean the first couple of times we did it i had to tell the students which words were going to re- be repeated because even that they were like nothing and i was like it's an article about soccer do you see the word soccer more than once yeah so underline it more than once <laughs> like um you know and to talk about you know when we especially in nonfiction and news articles the numbers are important dates are important even if it's you know whether it's numerical or written out um and then we were able to do one together it was from like the 1800s some explore a journal by an explorer um and so after we had done these a couple of times then that was the text we had to look at and that was interesting to look at you know what is this number and finally you know kids like what's well, a year and i'm like what's important about the year and they didn't know and i was like what are things that have happened since 1890? And they're like, everything. You know, so when we talk about people exploring, you know, he came in on a helicopter and he, you know, posted on TikTok. They were like, no. And I was like, that's what we had to think about. And then for our students, it's been really interesting to talk about and look at articles. Um, you know, I tell them to note the date. We all live through COVID. So when we talk about articles, you know, one of our units is about communication. Was this pre or post COVID? How would this have been different? You know, there's articles from before COVID about, oh my gosh, how amazing people are using Google Meet and video calls, you know? And then we're like, if this was written post COVID, would this be as, you know, new and interesting? Like, it's like, no, we're all tired of Google Meet. (laughs) Like, right. Mm -hmm. And to look at, um, and then we did, yeah, one of them was about transportation. And so we found, I found an article that was about changes in transportation after 9-11 and then after COVID. And so most of my students weren't born when 9-11 happened, which was so strange for me to be like, (laughs) yes, I flew before that. Um, But they did. I mean, and a lot of our students, you know, have family in other countries and did travel during COVID. And so to talk about, you know, all these travel things we had to read as part of the curriculum, it was like, you could do this, you could do that. And I'm like, it's weird to read about even just a couple of years later of like, yeah, but we couldn't for two years. You know, you can't just buy a ticket and jump on a plane and go to Mexico. You had to quarantine for a week when you got there. And then you had to quarantine for a week before you could come back. Um, And so for my students then to see, you know, when we talk about numbers, it's not just numbers. It's what does that mean? You know, to talk about who are they quoting and why is that person, is that person even important? Are they just quoting someone to quote somebody? Um, And it's been... It's been really cool to see um, my students who are typically not super engaged, especially if I give them a reading assignment, they just want to find the answers um, that they like actually will sit down and read an article um, and can say, you know, here's what the main idea is about. How do you know that? Well, I underline these three words over and over again. So it must be something to do with those three words. Um, You know, and here's what's important. And then to make some transfer of you know i was talking about the soccer one of like what was that oh no it was a different it was a different article about like why kids shouldn't play as many team sports and all my students who play soccer were like this article is so dumb of course everyone should play soccer <laughs> um you know but to say like what was the author's argument and why is yours different and to look at stuff like that um, and that's a piece from like the um 
the notice and notes, the nonfiction, uh, getting into that more sophisticated definition of nonfiction, but it's not about you know, nonfiction as fact and true and real. It's what the author claims to be fact or true or real. Yes. And they could be lying to you. They could be mistaken. They're expressing their opinion. So to them, it's true, but to me, it's not. Um, that's a thing of like, going back to your original question of why kids don't like to read is a lot. I hear this all the time. Why do I need this class? I can already read. And it's like, yes, you can already read, but there's so much more to it. Reading is a tool. It's not the end for itself. And to, to use this tool for all sorts of things, um, it's like, yes, you can walk, but can you run? Can you sprint? Can you mountain climb? Can you do all these things? And, um, you know, for an elementary age kid, that distinction of like, well, nonfiction is the true, is true stuff versus made up. That's a really useful thing, but we need to get more sophisticated with it as we get older and then make those decisions for ourselves of what are we going to do with this information? And that, what's your purpose in reading? Because at school, teachers can and should give students reasons to read. Like when you're done with this article, you should be able to know and do this. But then to give the students that agency to make their own decisions. about Why am I reading this? And choosing your own topics of, of exploration or, or things or teaching students, being curious so that there is some sense of control. And, and purpose of education is not just this hoop to get through so you get that degree and then you can make some more money than if you didn't have the degree, but that you're doing something that's fulfilling for yourself. That was a, that was a new idea to me in grad school. And I felt mm -hmm. I had such imposter syndrome of all these people around me. They have these grand plans for their whole careers and their education. And I'm just taking it class by class and meeting the criteria for the class and then but I'm supposed to be doing something more. Right. And it's hard to, you know, developmentally ninth graders are not, <laughs> not ready to see that, that, that big picture, but they are ready to make those small decisions about what am I going to decide is important about this article? What am I going to yeah. decide I'm going to do with this information? One of the articles I found when we were talking about travel, um, was an article about, uh, Oh, in Seattle, there's a alley that's famous for people putting their gum on the walls. Yeah, I've heard that. I think I've read that news all the article. You may have. And so I like told kids we're going to read today when they came in. You know, we have a procedure. They come in, they grab their article, they grab there's like laminated sheets, all this stuff. But I had the pictures in color on the board because, of course, we're teachers and we can't make copies in color. Um, and so I had pictures in color on the smart boards so they could see. And literally every single kid walked in was like, ew what is that and then so one of the and then when our like first half of our activity is always annotating the second half um is like three different levels of close reading questions but the kids get to pick mm -hmm. um and so i have them all on laminated like flashcards in different colors so there's like main idea questions um there's authors craft questions like the actual text structure questions and then there's um, like application inference questions. 
The kids don't have to know that. What they know, they're all color coded. You have to do one question of each color. <laughs> um, and I like, you know, distribute them around the room. I make sure that, you know, I pull specific questions for the article and there's like, fill, I can fill in the blank, it's dry erase. Mm-hmm. Um, the kids know they have to pick one question per color and I don't care which one they do, which is kind of how I build an agency of like, if you want to talk about, you know, this question, you can. And if you don't, go find another blue question somewhere in the room and answer that instead. Um, but for that article, one of the questions was like, how does the author feel about the topic? And do you agree or disagree? And the kids were all like, the author thinks this is such a cool thing and they're wrong. Like, that's nasty. Why would you go visit a wall of gum? Um, and that one was fun because like, you know, when we're looking for numbers and stuff, they have to like, they literally like steam off the gum it's like a inch thick by the end of like every year and they use a like high grade steamers to melt it off and my kids were like (laughs) i'm with your kids on that one i am too but it's fun to read and they're like you know all these people who go visit it it's so cool and my students were all like why um what are some ways that you so yeah so in my room the kids get to choose um the level of text, it's a, I could pick the topic, but they get to pick the level of the text. And they get to pick what they do as far as questions with it. There's, like I said, I can kind of guide it because if I don't want them to, you know, if a certain question in my like stack of cards doesn't apply to the text, I just don't give it to them. Um, there's been a couple where I will make up new ones specifically for that text. Um, but then they have some choice there of how what kind of questions they answer. Um, what does it look like for your reading classes for students to have some choice in it? Because I think that's part of the reason why kids don't like to read. It's because it's very obvious to them that we're reading only to like get to who's the main character. Like, why do I have to read the whole text? So what are some ways that you kind of fold in student choice into your lessons? First and foremost, we do silent sustained reading every day in, in all my classes. Um, and students get to choose their own books for that. Um, always it's reading for their own purposes. It's sustained reading over time. Um, I do have them do some writing about it, but I try to make it pretty, uh, pretty open, um, about things. And then when doing, um, like specific reading things, like we all have to read, like we're coming up on, uh, Romeo and Juliet. Um, I've got this uh, essential question. We're, we're all used to essential questions. Um, but my goal, like by the end of the, of this um, unit, would be to answer that question. And it's what do teens need from their relationships? Um, and But how they choose to answer that question and what texts they're going to use. Because we're, we're reading Romeo and Juliet. We're also going to do some short stories connected to love and relationships. We've read some nonfiction. We've looked at some infographics. Um, did a little like, this is how you use a database. Find an article about relationships. And keeping, you know, having all of those pieces of text, some chosen by them for themselves and some I've given them. Um, and then selecting for themselves, what are they going to include in their answer? Um, and that one... I'm really looking forward to it because I know they've got some students who are going to like, I've got all this and I'm going to include everything. Right. And they're really going to, that's the extension. 
Um, and then there's other kids who are like, I've made it to class three times this semester. <laughs> I'm going to be able to include these two texts. Yeah. Um, and so it it just allows that flexibility of everyone should be able to show um, what they've gotten from something over time, but then they're not completely left on their own. That was something that was going through my head as you were talking about your um, protocol with the different mm-hmm. color questions of students have the choice to respond how they want, but they're not left entirely on their own. Of like, here's an article, respond to it. Right. I remember having those assignments in, in my own education and being like, what do I do? And I'm a very capable reader and writer and I could do it, but man, it caused anxiety because right. how to do it and, and giving a framework and a little bit of vision of this is what we're doing and why. And then those choices within, I think that's an important balance for kids to be able to have some movement within, um, but still have, have some structure. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate like when we talk together, you would be like, focus on one theme or one character and you can make whatever decision you want about it, but that's what you're looking at. And so that freedom to explore, but not the whole story and the whole, like every little thing about the story, one symbol, one theme, one character, one something and track that. That way the students felt like they could actually see how something tied through the novel without feeling like they had to track everything at once. And then everyone was kind of doing different things, which was okay. Um, so last question, next steps. Um, and it's two, it's a two-part question. So systemically, if there's things you think need to change um, or just individually, how can you encourage classroom teachers to help in, help students love reading more? I love how you, the, the systemic question is what I'm going to get at because before COVID hit, that year we were doing uh, a push. We called it the school that reads. Mm-hmm. Our school motto is the school that leads. So the school that reads. And um, what we did is we gave our, our staff PD about how to help students wrestle with complex text in your class. And the expectation then was in every class, every week, students needed to have at least a couple of opportunities to handle complex text, preferably grade level or above, but something complex. And it didn't need to be long. It wasn't like read this, you know, four page story that's complex. It could be read the story and then we're going to pick, you know, one paragraph or one sentence out of it and teach you something about how to wrestle with that particular bit of complexity. Because there's pretty universal things that make a text complex. It's vocabulary, it's structure, it's density of ideas, it's background knowledge. So helping students and and teachers, all the teachers in the building did this um, because everyone's their expert in their own field. And it should not be up to the English teachers to do all of this. Yeah. Working with the math department this year, that's been one thing where they're, because we also did a push like that, but the math teacher, you know, some of the departments were like, well, we don't, that doesn't apply. And I was like, we had some um, 
math teachers who were like, well, if the kids can do the 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 work, does it really matter if they know the vocabulary? And it's like, well, yes, if they're going to continue to learn math, if they don't have this vocabulary, that's cutting their opportunity out. And there, there's that opportunity gap rather than that yeah. achievement gap. And just teaching, were, kids, teaching kids how to read a word problem. Yeah, yeah. It, that's it, a completely different strategy than what they're doing in their English class. Yes. When we say oh. and, that means add. What we found, we were collecting data for this. We had uh, some... We we're focusing on ninth graders who um, were at risk and, and struggling. So we had uh, some beginning of the year and middle of the year data. And we didn't have end of the year because that's when the pandemic and the shutdown happened. But we saw, um, and I'm not going to remember the exact numbers, so I'm not even going to pretend, but we did see a significant amount of growth from students who were at risk gaining in their reading. And it was different from our schools because our school was doing this protocol and the other schools weren't. Um, and so I think systemically, if we have all teachers feel empowered to, I know how to help my students encounter the complexity that they deal with in my subject area. And I'm going to make them encounter this on a regular basis. So kids are getting it five days a week, seven periods a day. And they're going to hit periodically. So my son just came home. <laughs> I don't oh. know if you can hear it in the background. Yeah. Um, all good. I think, yeah, I think that's a great point that it's not just English teachers. Um, we talk about transfer of skills. When I do this in my ESL class, I hope that they're doing it when they read articles in their science class and their history class as well. But if they're being taught it in their history class, that's not going to hurt them to just keep reteaching that skill. Um, well, thank you so much for taking time. It's so nice to chat and visit and catch up. I have missed us talking about teaching. I this is the the richness of this yes, career. And I agree. Teaching especially this um, the podcast has been really life giving for me because of that. You get so into the lesson planning and grading and student behavior stuff that like the actual conversation about why we love teaching gets lost. Um, so thanks for having that with me. Of course.